that that's our desire to know you more. Thanks through your word. You speak to us. We pray that it would be active and powerful, that it would cut into our lives, that it would change us and transform us. So I pray now that your word would go forth. Pray that you would enable us to hear and to obey what it is that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if any of you were here last week and heard Bill begin his sermon, the message on husbands and wives from 1 Peter, and we're expecting to come back and get the message to the husbands, he said to apologize and uh, that next next week you'll get the husband, the message to the husband. So make sure you come back. This is our way of making sure you come back at least another week. So today Bill's out of town, so I'll be speaking today. We're going to look at the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter three. So if you'll turn with your Bibles in your Bibles there, turn with me and I'll read. Uh, we're going to look at verses five through 15 uh, at this point. And I'm just going to share some thoughts on unbelief. What God has to say. Hebrews chapter three, verses five through 15. I'm going to read. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Well, the book of Hebrews is a letter. And if you were to read from beginning to end, it would remind you of a sermon that this author is writing. It's a sermon because you would go through there's passages of instruction and following those are warnings and encouragements to live a certain kind of life. So you would go from instruction to warning. And indeed, the passage I just read, we, there's, a, there's a section that instructs and then a section that warns. It's written to Jewish Christians who at this time are undergoing persecution and difficulty for their faith. They're being tempted to, to really to turn away from Christ to stop believing in him or at least adding other things to Christ to return to their Jewish faith. And the author's intent is very clear. He wants to encourage them to keep believing in Jesus Christ, to not turn away, to persevere in the faith that they had begun. The first four verses of the chat of the book, if you'll turn with me a page over, really set the foundation for the entire book. And I'd like to read those. Chapter one, one through four, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author starts the book and he gives you an idea of where he's going. He lays the foundation for the rest of his letter to the people that he's writing to. And he begins with Jesus. And if there's a key word in this passage in the rest of the book, you might see that it's the word superior there or supreme. And he establishes Christ as being supreme over everyone and everything. In fact, he goes on to describe Christ as being superior, supreme over angels. And then Moses. And he establishes Christ as the great high priest over all of the priests that lived before. And then the covenant or the promise that he brought in, he inaugurated this new covenant through his blood is a greater covenant because it allows us access to God. And so he is superior. And of course, if you were undergoing persecution, you would want to be reminded that the founder and the author of your faith is supreme. You would need to be reminded that he is in charge so that you would remember in difficulties and in trials, this one that you're following, the one that is leading you, the one that is walking with you. And that's indeed what the author is doing here. That they would maintain the belief they'd begun, that their hope in Christ would not be changed. And it's important that belief in maintaining this is important. A number of years ago, when I was um, working with campus ministry, campus crusade at the University of Nebraska, um, I had this bright idea and a bunch of guys thought it would be cool if we drove from Nebraska to Colorado to hike a mountain in a weekend. And so we said, hey, this would be great. We hopped in a van, drove 12 hours, uh, crossed the state of Nebraska, western, eastern Kansas, or eastern uh, Colorado, made our way to the mountain. Our, our mission was the summit of Mount Audubon. It's not a very big mountain, but it's a mountain nonetheless. They don't have those in Nebraska, and we thought, let's go try this. And it was fun for a while. We got there, and we had a rough night's sleep, got our, our tent set up. Got up the next morning early and began our ascent. Obviously, since altitude, their elevation is different in in uh, Colorado. We were all catching as much air as we could, breathing as hard as we could and stopping very frequently. As well, our legs were tired. We weren't terribly prepared for this hike. But just as we were breaking out of the tree line and doing fairly well at that point, we two of our party decided that they'd had enough. And they laid down. They literally laid down on the side of the trail and they said, we're not going any farther. We, we've had it. I don't, and basically, they couldn't imagine that getting to the top of this silly mountain could ever be worth the cost that it took to get there and the labor that it took. And so as a result, they stayed there. The rest of us moved on, even though they were just a few hours away. And if any of you have been on the top of a mountain, it is worth it. It is a wonderful view. And you go, because it's down from there. It's downhill the whole way. But after you get there in the view, but they missed it. You see, for them, belief was everything. If these two had believed that getting to the summit of Mount Audubon would have been worth it, they would have kept going. They would have persevered. But you see, their unbelief kept them from actually experiencing what the rest of us experienced. Now, that's an interesting story. But the author in the book of Hebrews wants us be reminded that belief is everything for the Christian and that belief is an active thing that will continue to endure. 
And it's a dangerous thing that a person calling themselves a Christian would ever turn away into the status of the heart that would be called unbelief. And so that's his warning. He says there's danger here. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Watch out. And so he wants us, he wants to warn us of the dangers of unbelief. At the same time, to encourage us to live a life of wholehearted belief. To believe and hold on to Christ. That's where the author is going to take us. Let me give you a couple of observations from the passage. First of all, as you look at this passage, you'll see throughout at least that caught my eye. Um, the word if is mentioned a, a number of times. It's a word that connects, connects a couple a conditional statement. Um, verse um, verse six. And we are his if indeed we hold fast our confidence in the boasting and our hope. Look at verse seven today. If you hear his voice, verse 14 says we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then again in verse 15 um, today, if you hear his voice, I think what we need to hear in this if is not is really a voice of warning for us. It's a voice of warning to continue on. And I don't think his point here is, is a legalistic point. What I mean by that, he's not saying that one's salvation or faith is somehow apprehended or purchased or obtained through obedience, through continued obedience, but rather one's salvation or faith is manifested through one's continued obedience or perseverance of the faith. So as one continues to move forward, the evidence was really true of them, that the one who is truly God's will not quit. They will continue to believe in who he is and believe to pursue and continue to pursue him, even in the midst of difficulties that they will continue. And that will be revealed who and whose they really are. So there's a voice of warning. He says, continue, keep going. And if you do, you reveal what's true of you. You reveal that you're a Christ. You reveal that you're in his household. You reveal that you have heard his voice. And as Christ said, my sheep hear my voice and they know it. The second is to, to look at the passage 7 through 11, which is really a quotation from Psalm 95, which is read earlier in, in the call to worship and a responsive reading. You might remember that. That this is written about the nation of Israel. It's written about ancient Israel, really describing the time period from which when they left, uh, they left Egypt and were rescued from there. And before they entered the promised land, you had this whole period that is primarily comprised of 40 years wandering in the wilderness as God led them. The whole story is a wonderful. You can, you can read it in, in the Exodus and the Numbers and Deuteronomy explains this. And what's important to note as this recounts or characterizes the nation of Israel, there's some incidents or some episodes you can go back and read. But this is primarily this primarily characterizes the general attitude of the nation of Israel. That they suffered from chronic belief. This wasn't a one-time thing here or there, but they were constantly arguing with God, constantly questioning Him, constantly complaining about where they were, constantly really rebelling against Him. And as you look here, you see that God was not pleased with that. But that generally characterized who they are. Another thing I'd like you to think about as you look at this psalm, it relates to the nation of Israel and the, and the generation that died in the desert. If you remember, all of the, one generation 
died in the desert so the new generation could go into the promised land. It refers to that generation. But then the psalmist takes the picture of Israel and he says it's for them in the time of the psalmist when he wrote it. And then the, the writer of Hebrews takes this psalm, part of the psalm, and he applies it to the generation that, that are hearing it here. And here we sit in the 21st century with the same message to us. Indeed, the word today here means exactly what it says. It means today. Today, if you hear his voice. This day, if you hear his voice. And then the you there is you. And it's me. And it's anyone who would hear the voice of God. And it describes who they are. Describes the nature of their hearts. And so... Surely, as we read this, we understand this message from Psalm 95 describes all of us, all times, all cultures, all people. The propensity or the tendency that we have, that our hearts have to go astray, to not trust God, to trust in ourselves, to be rebellious against him and to want to pursue ultimately what we want, even to the hardness of our own hearts. And so this is a message for everyone who would listen. A message as you look at your own hearts and you see the rebellion there. You see the difficulty of trusting God. And the question is before us, how will we live a life of belief? There's promises that we have, that there's difficulties. There will be certain challenges as we walk with Christ on this journey. But the question is, how will we continue? And the author wants us to hear there's, there's danger here. But he wants us to encourage us to move us forward. How will we respond to God especially in the midst of difficulties. Well, he goes on to tell us a couple of things I believe is important. First of all, to truly understand and to be able to protect ourselves from this hardness or this unbelief that we need to understand the nature of unbelief. In verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He wants to help us know. If you see there at the beginning, it's like a warning label. Be careful. Take care. Other versions say, see to it, brothers. Watch out for unbelief is essentially. Now, think with me for a minute. The nature of something, of anything, helps us understand how we deal with it or how we, if, how we can deal with it rightly. For example, the nature of firearms, the nature of explosive, the nature of a knife, the nature of a chainsaw might be that it's dangerous. It's inherently dangerous, right? These things are not inherently benign. Now, if a chainsaw's not on, maybe. If the firearm's not loaded. But they have potential for danger. And if I told you that I let my five-year-old play with a gun, a loaded gun, or play with matches and a gallon of gasoline, you would say, you are a fool. You would say, you don't understand the nature or the essence of those things. You need to warn her about these things. You need to put those things as far away as possible. You don't play with those things. And that's the same thing the author says. This nature of unbelief is such that you need to be careful because of what it does to the human heart. Watch out. And thus the, the warning label there to take care. But what is unbelief? What, how does he describe it? As you look at, look at this again. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. There's an interesting descriptive word there for the unbelieving heart. He says that it's evil. And I don't know about you, but when I look at that, my, my first pass to look at this was evil. That's kind of strong language. Isn't unbelief just the absence of belief? Isn't unbelief kind of passive and maybe something I will get at some point? 
Isn't it more benign, not malignant? Isn't it something that's really not so bad, but maybe I, I will believe someday? Well, the author seems to think that it's not such, that it's not accidental, it's not passive, but there's something willful, there's something active going on as he describes the nature of the unbelieving heart. He says that it's evil. And indeed, it's evil because it is active. For all of us who would turn away from God. And in looking at the, at the context of ancient Israel, you see that it's an active rebellion against who God is. And at the very root of it, it's an indictment on the very goodness of who God is. It indicts his goodness. It brings into question the goodness of God. That's what unbelief does. Let me explain that, what I mean by that. First of all, if you look back up in verse 9, we see, um, it says, Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The picture there is that they tested and tried God and his ways. What it means is they tested him to see, is this really good? Is what you're doing is really good? Now turn with me back to Numbers. We're going to look at a couple of episodes in the nation of Israel. Numbers chapter 14. Verses 1 through 4. Numbers 14, 1 through 4. This, um, if you might be aware or familiar with this situation, but Israel is now beginning to be brought up to the promised land and they've sent in 12 spies. Ten of the spies come back and, and they say, we can't take it. The people are too big. The walls are fortified. There's no way we can have this. They really express the nature of of Israel and the unbelief of the nature but if the, of the nation. You might remember also, too, Caleb and Joshua came back and said, wait, we can take it. Unfortunately, the nation chose to go with the 10 majority vote, I guess, and said, let's not believe. And let's see how they respond. Verses one through four. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole con- congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt and see what they do? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and return to Egypt. We see here out and out rebellion and tyranny where they're saying, why did God bring us here? Why, why? We should have died someplace else. Let's choose us a leader and let's return to Egypt. Let's turn to another passage in Numbers, another one of these points. And as I looked at this, to me, this really captures the essence of unbelief. Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. This is just, again, as they're um, preparing before they're, they get into the land, uh, the promised land. But... It's a point where they're thirsty. They don't have any water. It's the second time we see that God provides for them. But this is a response when they're thirsty. Now, there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Why have you made us to come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Do you see what they're saying there? The very place that God had led them to, the place that God had for them, 
the very situation that the sovereign God had brought them to, they were calling evil. Why have you brought us to this evil place? They were describing what God was doing and the works that he had for them evil. At the same time, they were attributing to what they wanted to return to Egypt was good. And the essence of evil is this. It is active rebellion against God, but it's an active and a willful indictment on the very goodness of God. It inverts what's good and what's evil. It says what I want, no matter what that is, is ultimately good. And what God wants, because this is a difficult situation, it must be evil because I don't like it. Indeed, it's the same thing that happened in the garden in Genesis chapter three. You'll see that what Adam and Eve did and what they were what they were deceived by and what they understood was the inversion of good and evil. What God had said is good. They, they saw was good, but they but what God had forbade them to have or to partake of in the fruit. They, they said there must be something better here. And they sought after it. So the very essence here of, of, of unbelief. We find this sin. It's active rebellion. And it says, God, what you have for me is not good. But what I want is ultimately good. And the writer of Hebrews is warning them of the nature of this. He says it's evil. It is not good. It's not something to be played with. But then he goes on to describe what it does. Look for me with me in the following this. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Do you see what it does? The evil, unbelieving heart leads one away, leads one to fall away from the living God. Now, there's a lot there and we can't unpack all of it. It's it's difficult, but this is one thing it does mean. We know for certain and the implication is it leads from the living God and it leads us to dead gods. It leads us from the God who satisfies the one who provides for us and it leads us to gods that are dead. Gods that cannot satisfy, gods that cannot provide. Indeed, it would have led Israel from God's gracious provision of the promised land. It would have led them from there back to slavery. And that's the warning here. He says it will lead you. It is dangerous because it leads us from life. It leads us to death. It's evil because it's actively indicting the very goodness of God. We, we can see here, as we look at our own hearts, as we look at the, this propensity, this tendency we have to not trust God, this drawing, if you will, to the cliff of unbelief, and yet we see that it's dangerous and it should frighten us to go, golly, I don't want to go there. As we look in our lives, and even the, the, the uh, song, the hymn that we sang earlier, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So we look at our lives, we see that's what's true of us. And that's why we need to hear the message and look to God. You see, it's easy to believe, isn't it, when everything's going well. It's easy to believe when there's no pain in our lives. When everything financially and relationally and emotionally and physically is going well, it's easy at that point in time to go, God is so good. But it's much more difficult to see the goodness of God when pain begins to enter into our lives. All kinds of things would then begin to change our orientation and we begin to call into question. If God is really good, why are these things happening? Why is this so hard? As we, we feel that pain in those of you who have been there, those of you who will, the, the shift or the orientation of your soul begins to flip. Instead of having our eyes fixed on Christ, all of a sudden we're fixed on ourselves and the pain and the difficulty that's there. 
in some ways it's legitimate. We don't like that. We shouldn't like it. And yet what happens is God being the object of our worship all of a sudden gets inverted and he no longer is the object but we are the object and he is the subject to respond to us to do exactly what we need. And our demands are, of course, just like the nation of Israel, meet my needs in my time. I demand that you respond on my terms in my time. And God will never respond like that. And indeed, in pain and difficulty and persecution, just like the readers of this book, the readers of this letter, those of us who sit here today, is the warning to say, watch out for unbelief. It's at this point in time that the seeds of unbelief are being sown that will continue to draw us away from the living God. And there's a couple of options we have as we see. If you were to look, I think if we were to have a picture of Israel, the picture might be a fist raised to heaven saying, you, I need to do, I need you to do, I want you to do, I demand that you do what I need. After all, does this make sense that I would follow you into this? We're thirsty. Of course they're thirsty. And yet when it turns the heart, and the same with us, we can either raise our fists and demand that God respond to us in our time and our way. I want the job today, relationship repaired today, physical healing today, on and on it goes. And yet the desire for those things are good. There's nothing wrong to want that, that our lives would somehow be repaired or restored. However, the demand that God do it in our way, in our time, subverts his place and his proper place of authority. The better response in times like this to move away from unbelief is really just bowing the head. It's submission to God as our sovereign. It says, I don't understand this. I don't like this, but I will trust you. I will trust that you know what you're doing and trust that you'll give me exactly what I need to continue. This is what belief looks like. And the warning is watch out for unbelief. It would cause you to raise your fist. It would cause you to demand of God things. See, the nature of unbelief that it's evil. It's a willful active indictment on the goodness of God. It's dangerous as well because it leads us away from the living God and leads us to dead gods. However, belief, belief is good. Belief is light. Belief is good because it enables us to grasp the goodness of God. It's active as well, but it's submissive. It holds on to who God is like an anchor. Later on, the, the author talks about Christ being an anchor for us. The God's character so is an anchor for us in storms. And so that's the reality, the goodness of belief and belief is life giving. It's life giving because what does it do? If unbelief leads us away, belief leads us to know God. It believes us, it enables us to know the living God in a way that we never would have known him before. As we encounter those circumstances and we say, "Okay, God, I'm going to trust you. He enables us to move forward. If you think about how Israel is described in verse 10, at the very last line, they have not known my ways is what God said. It says they haven't known who I am. It's because they wouldn't submit to him. They saw that they were led by a pillar of fire and a cloud and they were led through a sea that was torn open and they were miraculously rescued from the nation of Egypt. And yet they didn't know his ways. They didn't understand how he operated. And so as we believe God, we get a hold of who he is in a way that we never would have known, especially in difficult times and trying times in our lives. Our best is ultimately found as we trust him. I love Psalm 46:10. It says, be still and know that I'm God. 
be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Cease striving, stop, rest, trust in him is how we know him. If we strive against him, if we fight against him, if we quarrel against him, if we demand of him, we will not truly know him. Well, the author doesn't stop there. There's a warning. Be careful. The nature of unbelief. Be careful because where it leads you. But then he gives us a response. He tells us about the power, the importance of community. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a but. Watch out for this. But in the place of this, Exhort one another, encourage one another. Now, it's not exactly helpful to encourage or exhort yourself. I mean, it's hard to pat yourself on the back. It's hard to kick yourself in the pants. We need others to come alongside us, to exhort us, to encourage us. And we need to do the same for others. And that's indeed the command here. The command is to exhort one another. The word is a great word. It has two parts. The first part means to come alongside. The second part means to call, to invite or to urge on, to call, to invite, or to urge on. And so what the picture is for us is that you come alongside and you encourage and enable a person to do whatever it takes to get them to cross the finish line, to encourage them to keep going. Now, at different points in our lives, we need different things, don't we? Sometimes we need somebody to come alongside us and just put their arm around us and say nothing but say, man, that's hard to encourage us, to pray for us. Other times we need a swift kick. I've had those. I've had friends who have loved me enough to speak truth into my life. And I needed that. And all of us need that. And other times we just need somebody to cheer us on and say, keep going. Don't forget. Remember, finish line's not far. Summit's not far. Keep going. Believe who God is. Remember who he is and the importance of community. But then he goes on to describe the nature of this, but to exhort one another, the frequency every day, as long as it's called today. And if you think again about the nature of our hearts, that propensity towards that, and especially if you're in a situation where you're being persecuted, where life is hard and you're, again, undergoing these challenges for our faith, it is necessary that we have this on an ongoing basis. Somebody come alongside us. We need people to come and to speak into our lives, to encourage us to keep going. That phrase, as long as it's called today, uh, again, it's an interesting phrase, as long as it's called today. F.F. Bruce, a commentator, makes this statement. He says, while this time of difficulty lasts, each succeeding day is a fresh today in which we may heed the psalmist's warning and hear the voice of God and render him heart obedience. Every day is a new day, is a new opportunity for us to believe in the goodness of God and to lash ourselves again, as it were, to the goodness of who God is. And we need others to come around us to do that, to enable us to hold on to that goodness. At the same time, every day holds the danger, the potential that our hearts would move towards unbelief. And so community relationships is absolutely important. It's necessary for us. It's kind of active, encouraging community. It's great prevention for the hardness that comes from the deceitfulness of sin. In fact, you see, as you look at the text there, 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called the day, that none of you would be hardened by the sins of deceitfulness. Encouragement, exhortation helps to prevent that. The lack of this, the implication again, is that hardness, deceitfulness from the deceitfulness of sin would be a part of our lives. John Piper makes this statement referring to this passage. He says that eternal security in biblical language is a community project. Eternal security in biblical language is a community project. I might say it a different way. Persevering as believers is not just our own business, but it's the business of us all. It's the business of all of us to encourage that we would all help each other, if you were, get past the finish line. Exhorting, encouraging, building up one another. Say, keep going. Because sin is deceitful, it hardens our hearts, keeps us from understanding what's true of God, and causes us to think things of God that are not worthy of Him. And indeed, can cause that hardness of heart that we see demonstrated and represented in Israel, ancient Israel. Living in community means that we need others consistently looking into our lives. Community is messy at times. It's risky at times. But it enables us to see oftentimes what we don't see. What can be so subtle, what can be hidden from us. And that's thoughts that enter in that are so subtle that we don't see them. In fact, I remember a time in my life, there was a, a situation a number of years ago, just after my wife and I, Kelly and I, were married. And we were... We were on in ministry with Campus Crusade. We we're doing that thing called fundraising. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a challenge, but it was tough. And I still remember it. We were newly married and we were waiting for God to provide for our support. And we were working hard at it. Uh, I just remember her saying things like, are we supposed to get paid on this job? And I'm supposed to. But here's what happened. I remember at that point in time, because of the difficulty, the challenges, I remember being convinced in my own mind that it was necessary to change directions, that because it was hard, because it didn't seem like this were this would be where God would lead us in this kind of difficulty. I remember going, you know, I just don't think this is where God has us going. I think he has something else in mind for us. And uh, I made that perennial or that problem. I made the problem or the, the, the mistake of calling a friend and just running it by them. And I, I called a friend of mine who's a pastor, a friend of ours. And I said, Ray, here's where we are. This is really hard. Um, I just I just don't think God would really continue to lead us down this direction. Uh, maybe that's not exactly what I said, but that was what I meant. I just didn't think he would lead us in difficulties like this. And I still remember his words. That conversation was 13 years ago, probably this month, if I remember right. And I remember him saying <laughs> over the phone, through the phone, he said, you can't. Wait a second, wait a second. You know, I had this plan worked out. I just need you to endorse it. And he says, I'm not going to. And he spoke truth into my life. And he said, no, you need to wait on God. You need to trust him. Because I'm not certain right now this is what he has for you. And I think for you to jump right now, for to bail now, would be unbelief. It would represent that. And in retrospect, I look back at that conversation. I remember even after a conversation going, you know what? He's right. I convinced myself that this is what I should do. I changed my mind as a result of the circumstances, not because God had really changed them. And his voice of reason, his voice of warning, his voice of encouragement for me reminded me to keep going. And I can't even express to you what might have happened had he not said those words, had he not had not God used him in my life. In that time, as we walk through difficulties in our life, those challenges, 
we must have people to speak to us who will speak into our lives the truth of God. So keep going. Remember who God is. Don't forget. Don't forget. And I don't want to use this time as a as an infomercial, but I would encourage you, boy, to find those those relationships to continue to pursue those in and through the life and ministries of grace here. A number of things that are there that are designed to hope to cultivate that and facilitate those kinds of relationships, covenant groups and men's studies and women's studies and Wednesday nights and teaching of the word on Sunday morning and on and on that you would pursue those and ask God that he would help build and cultivate those kinds of relationships in your life. However, the message here to exhort one another every day isn't just for those who are in difficult circumstances. It's really for all of us. We need to encourage those who need encouragement. And there's definitely be a day when we need to be encouraged. But I have an assignment for you guys. What if I was to give you one little, I don't know if it's a solution, a question that if you asked with sincerity and that God would use could cultivate this kind of community that, that is being described here. I'm going to ask you to consider this. There's one question, and it's very simple. It's very basic. And first pass, you might wonder what I mean by this. But think of the question, how are you doing? How are you doing? Think about how God could use one simple little question to enable us to engage the lives of others, especially when we didn't really even want to. That he would open doors, allow people to share things that they would have never shared before, would allow us to encourage and build up and comfort and pray for people we didn't even know that they had needs of. Now, I'm not, you know, thinking you should go out and, you know, how you doing, how you doing? Like after my first sermon, somebody come up and asked me how I was doing and said, I'm doing pretty good. But that you would ask that, that you would pursue each other, that that's what we would do. And then as a community, that's the way that we would live. It's not the whole solution, but it's a part of it, what God would do. Ultimately, this kind of community in which we encourage one another every day, as long as it's still called a day, is something that God cultivates. It's something that he does in our lives. We participate. We ask him to do it. And ultimately, he grows it in our lives. So the message from the passage, the warning, be careful. Watch out for the evil, the the evil nature of unbelief, the demanding heart that raises its fist against God because of where it leads you. Then he encourages us as the answer, the antidote, the ingredient, however you want to call it, as we participate in this kind of community. God protects us and he enables us to continue to walk with him. Because I don't know about you, the longer I walk, you encounter those difficulties. I'm not that old, but I'm not that young. I know the things that we've encountered in marriage and life. In reality, and it's not easy at times. And you wonder how in the world will we continue to walk to see God in the end? That I would walk with Him for a lifetime. And it's a little daunting you think about it for a lifetime. But my desire, if you went farther in the book, you would get to chapter 11 of Hebrews, and you would see in that what's called the Faith Hall of Fame. And what it is is portrayed a group of men and women that we look back on who lived their lives by faith. And in the middle of that of that book, you will see. A phrase describing some of them, and it says, These died while living by faith. These died in faith, or while still living by faith. And describes men and women who died believing in the goodness of God, even though the promises that God had made to them hadn't been yet fulfilled. 
they still held on to the belief that he was good. And it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. And that my desire is that we would live this kind of life, that we would get to the summit of seeing the glory of God and seeing who he is. But we need each other to do that. But most of all, we need Christ. This isn't something we work on our own. It's not something we can do by our will. We need him to empower us, to give us eyes to see, to warn us, to be encouraged by each other. And ultimately, that we would follow Christ, who is the author, the perfecter, the completer of not just my faith, but our faith together. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful that you are the author and the perfect of our faith, that in Jesus, as we fix our eyes on him, we're able to run, run together the race that's marked out for us. Father, would you warn us of unbelief, sensitize our eyes and our heart to it, that we would be careful, that we would run from it and we would run to you, that you would break our hearts and cause us to be able to respond to you in belief. We can't produce this. Only you can. And we ask that you would at the same time. I pray that you would bring relationships, cultivate relationships of this kind in which we can exhort and encourage one another to help each other on the race. That we would continue to see you. Thanks, Father, that we can entrust ourselves to you as our great God. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. He would stand for the benediction.